and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a look at the modern rock charts one month at a time. Today we're going to be talking about August of 1992. Here to join me is Michael Allen. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. How are you? Pretty good, overall, considering. It's been a strange week. Yeah, it really has. I mean, honestly, it's been a strange couple years, but um, getting through it the best we can, I suppose. Mm. Thanks for coming on the show. We're going to be talking about one of your songs today, as well as three other songs that charted in August of 1992. But I thought we'd just start out and talk a little bit about you and how you got into music, how you ended up being a musician, if that's okay with you. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, I uh, started off 1976. I went with uh, my friend Marco at the time. We were at uh, Sixth Form College together, 17 years old. He knew Malcolm McLaren, and uh, he said, do you want to come and see a band that Malcolm's managing? We went to the 100 Club in London, Oxford Street, and saw the Sex Pistols. 1976, it seems to be the year, like when I talk about bands, like so many, so many of these bands started right around that time, and more often than not, it's because they saw the Sex Pistols. Yeah. Buscots, yeah, there's so many bands. So you went and saw that show, and it was it was like, wow, those guys can do this, I can do this? Like, was that... I, I think so. It was mind-blowing, really, so just how cathartic it was. You know, it, it just empowering it was, you know, seeing these young blokes who weren't particularly very good at playing their instruments, but it was all about the attitude, uh, getting up there and just doing it, and um, seeing Rotten close up was um, something else. It really did change everything. You know, I was at college. I thought that I'd be going on and sort of go on to art college and become a painter. That's what I was interested in. But Marco, as I say, I was friends with Marco. He had a load of uh, equipment at his house and uh, he he could play the guitar. And uh, my best mate, Cliff, we just, after that, why don't we sort of try doing something? And he taught me how to play the bass. That seemed to be the easiest instrument. <laughs> yeah, nice. And when you, we're talking about Marco, you're talking about Marco Peroni, is that right? Yeah. Who later went on and became a member of Adam and the Ants. Yeah, well, first, yeah, I mean, he did that uh, that uh, famous show, the Punk Festival, with uh, the first Susie and the Banshees, with the Lord's Prayer, and I was there for that as well, you know, with Vicious on the drums. These are things that I've, you know, read a lot about, of course, but it's hard for me to imagine actually being there <laughs> in the thick of it all, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, to, for me, it's it, it's my sort of, you know, those people who say they saw the Beatles at the cavern, you know, it's it's that sort of a thing, you know, it's, it's um, all the people who say they were there, you'd feel the Albert Hall, I think, but um, the first time I saw the Pistols, I think there was about 30 people there, but the um, at the punk festival thing at the 100 Club... Yeah, probably 100, 200 people. I don't know how many the 100 club holds, actually. But Yeah, it, yeah, it really is amazing, though, how, how few people were actually there. And, and yet so many people were affected and so many people started bands and just the whole face of music changed. Yeah, well, certainly the Buzzcocks and I think Joy Division. I'm sure Ian Curtis and that lot uh, uh, there in Manchester seeing the Pistols. Because I mean, they did the tour, I think there's a lot of people were affected. All right, well, uh, we're going to definitely talk more about you and your and your bands and your music uh, when we get a little later 
into the show. But why don't we jump over and start talking about the charts for August? The first band we're going to hear from is a band called Faith No More. This is a band that was formed in 1981 in San Francisco, California. Originally, they were called Faith No Man. In 1983, they changed that to Faith No More. And they went through a number of singers in the early days, including Courtney Love from Hole. She was their singer briefly. Later, Chuck Mosley was their singer for a couple albums before they finally settled on Mike Patton, who was also the singer for a band called Mr. Bungle. And they heard a demo of his songs and asked him to join the band after Mosley had left. (laughs) And so the first album that Mike Patton did with the band, it was called The Real Thing. And I think almost a year after the album was out, this song called Epic took off. It was a, a real slow build, but Epic became a big pop hit, kind of a surprise to everybody. And the album went platinum in the U.S., sold over a million copies. Oddly, it didn't chart on the modern rock charts at all. I feel like it might have been just too heavy for modern rock listeners in a pre-Smells Like Teen Spirit sort of era. But their follow-up album called Angel Dust was released in 1992, and we're going to be listening to a song off of that. It's their first single from the album called Midlife Crisis. It became their biggest modern rock charting song, hitting number one in August of 1992. So this is a new band to you. Completely, yeah. Well, how did it strike you? The beginning, I, th- I thought it was great. I mean, the first 30 seconds, I really liked uh, the way that the vocal was sort of rhythmic. And and it's, it's very difficult, isn't it, sort of um, commenting on something. Sort of, what, how many years are we talking now? 30? Looking 30 years? Just about 30 years, yeah. Goodness right. me. <laughs> But I can hear the 90s production, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of uh, the producer sort of getting his fingers dirty on all the uh, the effects and things. So for me, I can clearly see why lots of people like it. Mm-hmm. It's not a million miles away from those uh, those bands, I don't know, sort of uh, White Snake maybe. <laughs> so it's very stadium rock, you know. It's sort of like that, that kind of macho rock and roll, which... yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to say, yeah, it's it's not really for me. But I can see why people like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I more or less agree with you. If I think about their previous huge hit, Epic, that song has like a big sing-along chorus, but the song's always felt kind of clumsy to me. Oh, really? Yeah. This Mm. song sounds like they've taken their influences and kind of distilled it into something that's more themselves. It did feel a bit patchwork to me as i say i think the producers are taking control of putting all these little things in that uh, he thinks are, are, are rather clever well I, speaking of which it's pretty hard to pick out but there is a sampled beat from simon and garfunkel's cecilia in there somewhere all right as well as a sample from the beastie boys car thief 
<laughs> you know, it's it's like a subtle thing to the point where you go like, wow, well, why is that even in there? I, I don't know. But and the Beastie Boys, you know, I get the Beastie Boys. You know, they were doing their own thing. You know, it's uh, it felt honest. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas I feel, oh, as I say, I don't want to be too negative about the whole thing, but it, it feels that they're they've constructed it in such a way to sort of, for it to be a hit. I'll say this in the band's defense, though. If you listen to the full album, it does have kind of like this big metal feel on a lot of the songs, but also like one song will sound like a country tune, and this one's kind of jazz-influenced. You know, whereas I would say most metal bands, it's just like, this is straight-up metal. This band is clearly interested in a lot of different genres and, and styles, and I don't know if that makes them better, but maybe it makes them more interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely into that as well. You know, I'm, I never ever wanted to be sort of one thing. There's so many bands, they, they have a formula, they have a sound, and mm-hmm. they, they stick with that. You know, I, I like the idea of sort of changing, never repeating. Mm-hmm. That, that was very much about what we were about. So, uh, Faith No More, the band broke up in the late 90s which might have been bad for the band because just around the time they broke up, there were a lot of bands that were heavily influenced by Faith No More, like Korn and Slipknot and System of a Down and Limp Bizkit and those kind of bands. Right, right. Who were all starting to become huge and taking over the airwaves over here. But (laughs) Faith No More reformed in 2009, and they are still together today. Okay. The next artist we're going to talk about is Morrissey. We have talked about Morrissey on the show quite a bit before because he's been charting pretty steadily since the charts were formed. So I don't know how much I want to say about him. The internet seems to hate him right now. He's got a view. He's got an opinion. I'm not sure how truly he holds those opinions. I don't know. You know, maybe he does. Whether he's uh, simply trying to be controversial. I actually don't follow him. I never have. Uh, I never got the Smiths. There's one song of theirs I liked. Is it How Soon Is Now? I kind of like that one. But generally, I, I, I've never listened to But I, I know a lot of my friends uh, at the time were massive, massive fans of theirs. And, uh, you know, he was almost godlike, wasn't he? Uh, mm. Yeah. To a lot of people. So he was, I didn't get it. Yeah, well, didn't get it. honestly, I, I feel like part of the reason you get so much hate these days is because I think a lot of people really feel disappointed by him. Like they held him up so high. And then when he says something that's upsetting to them, it feels even worse than if, you know, someone they didn't like said the same thing. Yeah. I mean, Rotten, uh, Johnny Rotten sort of like falls into that category, sadly. Sure. You know, somebody who I sort of uh, really admired and sort of um, was struck by, uh, you know, when they first came out and, you know, what he stood for and what he, you know, spoke against. And um, finding out that he's a pro-Trump and <laughs> all these sorts right. of things. Uh, it sort of goes against everything that I thought he was about. But maybe I'm missing something. I think he, t- he liked the idea of Trump being a, sort of a, an outsider or, or whatever. But um, it's uh, not something I'm comfortable with. Yeah, and I guess I feel like... Both of those people, Morrissey and John Lydon, I think their politics are probably more complex than people want them to be. You know, I, I think we all want you to either fit into this category or that category. You're either liberal or conservative or whatever it is. And I think both of these guys, they have ideas that might fit into one category sometimes and another category another time. I mean, Morrissey certainly has views like 
he's very outspoken against police brutality and for animal rights and things like that. Yeah. So to just say, like, oh, I'm going to dismiss him completely because he says this one thing, you know, it's hard for me. It's it- No, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's all very complex. It's all, there's, there's lots of grey, you know, it's not black and white. And uh, unless I was able to sort of have a chat with them, I, I, you know, right. I, I can't really form a, 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 an opinion one way or the other uh, about them. Yeah. I can only sort of take on face value what I hear and some of what I hear I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so as you said, Morrissey was a singer for the Smiths. Smiths broke up in 1987. By 1992, he was releasing his third solo album. This one's called Your Arsenal. It was produced by Mick Ronson, who is known as the guitarist from David Bowie's Spiders from Mars. And this album featured a new lineup of musicians, including guitarists Alan White and Boz Borer, both of whom would go on to co-write many of Morrissey's best post-Smiths songs, I think. So we're going to be hearing the second single from the album. In the UK, for reasons I can't figure out, the second single from the album was actually called You're the One for Me, Fatty. They didn't release that as a single over here. Oh, I do remember that. And... Over here, instead of releasing that, they released the song Tomorrow. So while Tomorrow reached number one on the modern rock charts in the U.S., it did not chart in the U.K. Here it is, Tomorrow. It sounds like Morrissey. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds like the Smiths. Yeah, I mean, I like Morrissey quite a bit. I think the song sounds good, and it has all of the things I would expect to hear in a in a strong Morrissey single. But for me, this song sounds like it's going somewhere and then never actually gets there. Yeah, I agree with that. It feels very linear, which, again, I'm very fond of the linear, actually. But for this this type of song, you feel that it's going to develop into something. But no, it, it, it just, it's quite there, you know. I guess I wanted like a bigger, more impressive chorus or for it to take like a left turn and go somewhere weird. The part that's there is fine, but I think I prefer probably all of the other singles off of the album, honestly. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's that 60s sort of jangly guitar yeah, that's been done to death, I think, you know, that Birds, you know, and all those sort of uh, 60s guitar bands, you know. It was fine then, kind of. I'm not sure how much I liked it then, really, but um, I, I mean, I'm much more into sort of bass rhythm. It's sort of lightweight. Sure. It, it doesn't do a great deal for me, I'm afraid. Well, we're going to hear from Morrissey again in the future on this show. He's going to chart quite a few more times. And uh, he's still doing his thing. He's still playing music, recording music, and his most recent album was released in 2020. Was it really? Yeah. He's still going, still going. Well done. All right, we're going to move on, and we're going to talk about a band that you know very well, because this is your band. The band's called The Wolfgang Press. okay. 
the song we're going to be listening to is A Girl Like You. The band, as far as I know, formed in 1983. Does that sound about right? Honestly, I don't, I, <laughs> I've not looked back to sort of uh, remember, actually. Uh, but yes, yeah, that sounds about right, yeah. You had gone through a few bands before that. Correct. That's been about 78, I think. Okay. Uh, after the punk thing, I just uh, thought we can do more than this, you know. There's more to sort of making music sort of interesting. So, yeah, met up with an old friend, Gary, from school. Decided, you know, I was going to leave the models and asked Marco if he wanted to come join. Had this sort of vision of what I wanted it to sound like. Like the idea of noise, feedback, bass, very prominent and tribal, sort of tribal drum Mm -hmm. type. That was Rima Rima. That was short-lived. Uh, we, but we did do an EP, posthumous release with 4AD, and that started our relationship with 4AD. Then there was another band called Mass, which we did a single and an album for. Very dark, uh, but similar in its approach to Rima Rima. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to fit all these years in yeah. into when we actually started the Wolfgang Press. So you, you were saying 1983, was it? That's what I read. And uh, the Burden of Mules was, yeah. re- was released in '83. So yep, 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 yep. That the Burden of Mules, <laughs> even for me, I think um, it, it's a pretty difficult listen. We were very much experimenting, improvising at the time. Yeah, there's quite a few tracks that I still quite like, uh-huh. but. I know it's pretty raw, quite primitive. Yeah, I've, I read quite a few reviews, and the word that probably came up the most was challenging but rewarding, mm. or not for the faint of heart. Well, I mean, at, at the time it was <laughs> uh, not that we got many reviews, but I, I don't think we got one favorable one. So, which is fine. Yeah. Yeah, challenging is probably a good word. Do you feel like you made it just as music for yourself? Like, this is something you needed to do and what you needed to hear? Or was No, 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 no. No, did you feel like there was an audience out there for it? I didn't think there was an audience necessarily. But, I mean, you know, again, I'm just going back to, you know, groups like The Soft Machine. They were just playing with sound. And that's what interested me is to sort of what you can make, not being a musician, really. And none of us were musicians, in the true sense, you know, or maybe we are in the true sense musicians because, you know, we're playing around with sound, with atmosphere and sort of trying to make something that has not been made before. For me, that's always been my raison d'etre, sort of is create something that has not been created before. Impossible, I know, but um, when you're young, you think you can. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, if we fast forward just a little bit to the late 80s uh, with Bird Woodcage, is that correct? Bird Woodcage, yep. Yeah, your sound had started changing a little bit by that time. It's getting a little funkier and a little dancier. I think that's when we finally produced something which is wholly was us. Mm-hmm. Before we'd been sort of dabbling and sort of trying things and experimenting and that's the first time I felt that we'd created something whole which made sense and was going in the right direction. I really like that album. So if we uh, keep on going to 1992, mm-hmm. the Wolfgang Press, you had an album called Queer, mm-hmm. which was released in the UK. And then 
they changed the album art and changed the track listing a little bit, and there might have been some issues with some samples. You've just jogged my memory. Yeah, that's correct. Yes, we had to redo the whole album because of the fact is, yes, we use bits and bobs from here and there. I seem to recall that, you know, we used uh, I'll Be Your Mirror from the Velvets, uh, I think. Uh-huh. That, well, we, we, we used that. And um, Lou Reed or his publishing company wanted 100% of the uh, publishing on the song. So. Wow. Which is their prerogative to sort of be asking for, I guess. But we said, well, hold on. You know, it's, it's that much of the song, you know. I guess that's all right, but it seems ridiculous. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sort of like neither here nor there about it. But I, I think at the time, we weren't thinking like that. We were just saying, quite excited about the technology and, and how we could use that to sort of make something new, you know. Yeah. Not really thinking about the consequences, you know. Sure. All right, well, we're going to be listening to a song called A Girl Like You. This song does not appear on the UK release of Queer, but it was included as the first track on the US version of the album. And the song went to number two on the modern rock charts. Did it really? I kind of knew that it, it had more coverage than anything else that we had done before that, but um, I didn't know really what that meant or what it was your manager wasn't calling you up going like guys the record's at number two and we don't never really had a manager so oh okay all right (laughs) what i remember about this particular song is that um we were being told that it's being played a lot on the radio but (laughs) they couldn't get the vinyl over so nobody could buy it oh so it's being played on the radio but nobody could buy it so which is typical sort of uh, independent label sort of traumas. But sure. It didn't bother me too much, to be perfectly frank. Anyway, yeah, if you want to play the song. Let's do it, yeah. Here it is, yeah. A Girl Like You. overly fond of that track the intention was to uh, not repeat um because Burwood Cage was again quite dark and I think we try to lighten things up a little bit to the detriment of uh, some of the songs well I like the song <laughs> <laughs> what can I say you know sorry I keep harping back to Birdwood Cage but that was a very insular album it was me, Mark, and Andrew. You know, that was the Wolfgang Press. We were sort of just in there together, writing, and we had Flood, the producer. Do you know Flood? Yes. He'd done a lot of stuff with Nick Cave, but he went on to do U2. And so it felt like a very tight and quite claustrophobic, but I kind of liked that, almost like just the four of us creating something. Yeah. And so the idea was with Queer was to sort of 
open it up and sort of like allow other people to come in and have their sort of say and give their impressions we'd come up with some basic ideas and then let other people come in and interpret that yeah you know i'm being very negative about it but at the time i kind of liked that collaboration but when i look back on it now i'm not so fond of what we produced there i mean it's not bad it's just it's not something that means as much to me Sure. Yeah, I I get that. All right, well, I guess one more note about A Girl Like You is that a few years later, it was covered by Tom Jones. And I think he also got the Wolfgang Press on board to write a second song for uh, his album. So, And then I read that you performed with him at some point as well. Yeah. The story goes is that um, his manager, who was his son, was they were he was doing a new album. He was looking for, for tracks, contemporary sort of uh, artists uh, to cover. Yeah. And uh, our publisher had uh, sent him a CD... With, I think it was he was pointing uh, Tom Jones to a, I think it was a Love and Rockets song or something, but just by chance, it was a compilation of, and we were on this CD. They heard that, and Tom said that's a song he would like to do. So it's kind of chance that that happened, um, <laughs> and then they just asked, you know, would you? write a song specifically for Tom. And we said, yeah, we'll have a go. And Andrew came up with this very brass section type riff, very sort of catchy. We were laughing as we were doing it, really. But um, we wrote it in about 30 minutes, and um, they liked it. (laughs) All right, so... The Wolfgang Press released another album, and I think in 1995, pretty much packed it up and called it a day. Was that was it? Just that the band had run its course, more or less. Very much so. Yeah, I think we'd had enough of each other, quite honestly. But yeah, it, it wasn't particularly nice mm. toward the end. You know, Ivo, who's uh, the head of 4AD, had tried, I think, to, you know, to push our profile, whatever you like to call it, it didn't really work. I mean, we remained sort of selling not very much, really. Uh, and Birdwood Cage had cost a lot of money as well, so we were massively unrecouped. We had lost our way a little bit, though there's a couple of really great tracks on there, I think, but that you know, happens to everybody. You get stale or you... you, you you get confused or, you know, your life changes for various reasons. I, um, at the time, I just started a family. Mm-hmm. Also, that that becomes sort of quite important and sort of, um, yeah, I just didn't feel like we were together. Yeah. Of the same mind, you know, yep. about what music we should be making. Sure. Okay. Well, great. Thank you. We're going to talk about one more band, and that band is called Sonic Youth. Mm -hmm. This band was formed in New York in 1981. Thurston Moore, Kim Gordon, and Lee Ronaldo have been the core of the band throughout their entire existence. And they're named after a combination of 
Fred Sonic Smith of the MC5 and a reggae artist, Big Youth. Uh, initially, they were, they're considered to be part of the no-wave scene, frequently described as noise rock. I read that in 1984, the band played their first gig in London, and the show was a disaster, and their equipment was malfunctioning, so Thurston Moore just destroyed all of their stuff on stage, and it resulted in rave reviews from the British press, which then resulted in (laughs) increased popularity in the U.S. when they got back home. So, I don't know if it's true, but it's uh, it's a funny story, so (laughs) we'll go with that. And and the good old tradition of... uh smashing up your gear just like the who and everybody else that'll get you publicity yep so throughout the 80s sonic youth held the position as one of the most important guitar bands in the u.s but still fairly an underground sensation by 1990 they had moved on to a major label and that was an important move actually for a lot of other bands because i don't know how it was in the uk but in the u.s there was a really big concern about selling out. So Sonic Youth signing onto a major label kind of gave permission to a lot of other underground and indie bands to sign onto a major label without maybe losing their credibility. Right. Was that an issue for for bands where you are? I always remember that sort of the idea of sort of um, signing to a major label selling out. I, I've never quite understood that. It's up to you what you give away. We're very much about controlling our creativity and maybe that's to our detriment but that was really important to us so it depends on what's important to you and and if you it doesn't matter with your with a major label i don't think if you maintain control of of your creativity lots of people have done it I've, i've never understood this whole thing about selling out i remember that was a big thing about punk rock you know oh you can't you know selling out it's about your desire to keep control Mm -hmm. which was very important to us yeah in 1992 sonic youth released the album dirty and dirty was produced by butch vig who had recently produced nevermind for nirvana i think label Um, expectations were probably pretty high that they might have a another nirvana on their hands we're gonna be listening to 100 percent This was the first single released off of the album, and it became Sonic Youth's highest charting song in the U.S., reaching number four on the modern rock charts. I don't know if it's super clear from the lyrics, but the song is about a friend of the band who had been murdered in an armed robbery. His name was Joe Cole, and I think he was housemates with Henry Rollins, and they were returning from a Hole concert, and when they got to the house, someone tried to rob them. Henry Rollins, of course, escaped, and Joe Cole, friend of Sonic Youth, uh, was shot and killed. So uh, it, wow. it does give a different context to the song, I think, knowing the backstory. Mm-hmm. On that note, here it is 100%. 100%. I mean, for me, it's the guitar. Mm-hmm. I love that sort of um, noise. 
that he's created there. Yeah. I'd written down some notes, um, and I, I had put, you know, sort of lineage, sort of MC5, Stooges. I could even hear a bit of Alice Cooper in there, but uh, early Alice Cooper, that is. Distorted bass. I mean, that's something we were doing quite well you know, in Rima Rima. That feedback, distorted guitar, I love all that. Yeah, and I think that's really the appeal with Sonic Youth. I mean, if, you, if you're not into the guitar, the distortion, alternate tunings, it's probably not going to be a band for you. I like Sonic Youth a lot, but I'm often drawn to strong or compelling vocals and like melody mm. lines. And if, if that's what you're looking for in a song, Sonic Youth's probably not going to be your favorite band because... Uh, I wouldn't have thought so, no. No, yeah, that's it's probably the weak point of the band. I don't want to be too negative, but um, the the vocals are not always super compelling, at least not to me. But yeah, as far as guitar goes, they're very creative. They frequently have very strange tunings, and I've read that mm. part of the reason for that was early in the band they couldn't afford uh, anything but really cheap guitars, and when they played them, they sounded like cheap guitars. And so what they decided to do was mess with the tuning, stick things in them under the frets, and make weird noises. And yeah, um, yeah. for me, yeah, that's that's what you know, truly creating sort of music uh, is about is um, fucking things up. If I'm allowed to say that, oh sure. But uh, yeah, uh, no, I I enjoyed that. Sonic Youth, you know, they were always well-loved within kind of the alternative rock community. They never had a hugely selling album. They never had anything go gold or platinum, as far as I know. In 2011, Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon split up after 27 years of marriage, and that dissolved the band oh, as well. Oh, they were married. I didn't know that. They were, yep. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And so okay. Sonic Youth is no more. That's it. That's our bands. That's our songs for today. But uh, there's one more band I'd like to talk about at least, and that is uh, your current band. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days? Um, currently, I'm uh, working with Andrew again from the Wolfgang Press, so uh, oh, we're, we're sort of okay. trying to get some tracks together. Interesting. And, and when you say that, you mean you're working under the name The Wolfgang Press? No. It's Andrew and his brother Steve, uh, another non-musician. Is there a name? Is there something we should look for? Or it's just uh, at this no, point? No, we no, haven't, we haven't. We've, we've got about um, 20 songs that we've written. We've just got to sort of uh, find the time and the, the place to record them properly. All right, so future project and something for us to you know anticipate and be on the lookout for. That sounds good. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's that's about it. Okay. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Um, I really appreciate your time, and it's very informative. I'm not particularly good at these things, but, um, yeah, well, thanks uh, for inviting me anyway. If anyone wants to get a hold of me, you can contact me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening, and I'll catch you all next time. Bye. <laughs>